Romans 10.1 Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for this privilege that you've given us to be before you, to look at your word, and to hear God, your spirit, speak to us from your word. And we pray, Lord, that that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be ready to hear, and that you would use your word, God, to, to, to be active in us, to bring us into greater conformity to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I noted last week when we looked through Romans 9 um, that that chapter is the first of three chapters talking about Israel and answering, I believe, the question, the, the potential objection to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God and that God works all things together for good. So Romans 9, he raises the issue of Israel. Well, what about Israel's past experience? Romans 10, Israel's present experience where we are today. And then Romans 11, Israel in the future. And, and here, the, one of the, the big central um, issues that Paul's going to conclude this chapter with is just what did Israel know? And did they know enough? I told you last Sunday about some of my boyhood memories told you about the boys that lived around the neighborhood. Besides the McCalls, there were the Fowlers who liked to play Evil Knievel and jump over their nephews and nieces. There were the Ryans that liked to, were fixated on getting their little brother to fly. Um, not the Ryans, the um, Gordons, whether they liked it or not. I didn't tell you about the Ryans, another family down the street, also all boys. They kept, if there were any girls, I think the parents just kept them locked up. They were afraid to let them loose. But the Ryans, all these boys, they, 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 they were amazing as well. And, and one of the things they liked to do was go into a bedroom, issue darts to all the boys. They'd have a fistful of darts, turn off the light, and then throw darts at any noise they heard. 
Now, those parents, I'm sure, did not have a rule. Do not go in the dark room and throw darts. Most parents wouldn't think, I wouldn't have to have a rule to do that. I, you know, at his hill over the course of the years, sometimes I've thought we should have written a book. It would be a big book by this time, but, but all the different things that have happened and things you thought, we shouldn't have had to say anything about that. One time, some of the guys went out and thought, you know, we've never eaten armadillo. And so they, they, they went and killed an armadillo and thought, now we need to cook this armadillo. And so they went into the kitchen late at night, and they got out one of the, one of the big pots, and they tried to boil that armadillo in the kitchen in one of our pots. So our cook said, you know, maybe I can sterilize this pot, but I don't even want to think that there was ever an armadillo in this, in this pot, so um, the pot was thrown away. We didn't have a rule, don't cook armadillos in the kitchen. You didn't, wouldn't think it would have to be stated. Now, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and, and people question, how clear is the portrait of Christ? And however clear it is, we could always say it could have been clear. Chapter 10 of Romans is saying to us, Israel knew enough. The portrait of Christ was enough. But that's the last point that Paul's going to get to. Other points prior to that, and there's four main points here in this chapter, it seems to me, is the first one answers the question, what can sinners know and do? Secondly, what must they know in order to be saved? And third, how is that knowledge acquired? And then finally, did Israel have saving knowledge? So the first question, what are sinners capable of knowing and doing? Now, before I even look at Romans 10 here and what Paul says, we need to remember what Paul has already said, so because it looks like he's, he's contradicting himself. If you'll go back to Romans chapter 3 to see his first statement concerning sinners. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous... Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's enough to get the idea here of what Paul's saying. There are none who are seeking after God. There are none who are righteous. And then if you remember from Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, chapter 8, verse 7, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, um, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So these are two very strong statements, Romans 3 and Romans 8, where we're told that the person um, who is not saved does not seek after God, he cannot please God, and he does not subject himself to God. Having said that, now note what Paul also says in Romans about what the sinner is capable of knowing and doing. First from right here in Romans 10, this is what spawns this, this thought. 
Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, speaking of Israel, is for their salvation. So these are a lost people. They are not saved. Then he says in verse 2, I bear them witness. So I'm testifying in their favor. They have a zeal for God. So lost people can have a zeal for God. The same ones that cannot please God and do not subject themselves to God can have a zeal for God. But that's not the only statement he has to make here. While we're looking back at Romans, I want to again just review these first ten chapters and the positive statements that Paul has said about what a sinner can do. Look back at chapter 1 of Romans. Chapter 1, just very quick, quickly look over some of these verses. Chapter 1 and verse 21. Again, speaking of the unbeliever. For even though unbelievers, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So three things are being said here in this verse concerning unbelievers. They can know God in the sense that there is a God and they are personally accountable to Him, that He's a personal God. Secondly, they can honor Him. And thirdly, they can give thanks. To God. All three of those statements, Paul says, are true concerning the unbeliever. And then in verse 32 of the same chapter. And although they know the ordinance of God. So another positive statement about unbelievers. They can know God's ordinances. And then coming over to chapter 2 in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending, um, defending them. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So this verse is telling us that here are people who do not have the law instinct do the things of the law because it is written on their hearts. So you can know the ordinance of God, you can honor God, you can thank God, you can know God, you can have a zeal for God, you can instinctively do the things of God and your conscience can either acquit you or condemn you because of what you know to be right or wrong. In chapter 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The unbeliever can sin. Now, we'd all say, well, that's a, that's a given, but it's, an, appoint, it's, it's an, a, a, an important point to make because it speaks of moral culpability, that the unbeliever can choose to sin. The unbeliever knows what is right and what is wrong, and therefore he can be held morally responsible. And then later on, chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, I'm sorry, yeah, no, chapter 4, Verses 3 and 5. Um, but just picking up in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. The unbeliever can believe. And then going back to chapter 10 in verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So these are 10 statements here in Romans 1 through 10 about what a believer, can, unbeliever, a sinner can do. What he is capable of knowing and doing. He can have a zeal for God. He can know God. He can honor God. 
He can give thanks to God. He can know the ordinance of God. He can instinctively do the things of the law. He can experience in his conscience conviction and or acquittal. He can sin. He can believe in Christ and he can subject himself to the righteousness of God. These same people where Paul says that they cannot please God and that there are none who seek after God. Both things are true. So it would seem that Paul is saying that though man is depraved, he is not necessarily as bad as he can possibly be. He is as bad off as he could be. That doesn't mean he's as bad as he can possibly be. Sinners can do good things. Sinners can acknowledge God. Sinners can be convicted of their sin. Sinners can thank God, honor God, have a zeal for God. These are all things that just in these 10 chapters of Romans that Paul says concerning the unbeliever. They are spiritually dead. Now here's the thing. We sometimes hear, because Scripture says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we are dead in the same sense that a corpse is dead, where there is no responsiveness at all to any external stimuli. You can poke it, You can do anything you want. It will not respond. We've heard that in wartime, and we have have men and women that are in war now, that when they come up on, on an enemy combatant and they want to know whether that person is dead or not, the quickest and easiest thing to do is just thump their eyeball. Because if they're dead, they will not respond. And if they're just faking it, playing possum, they will respond when you thump their eyeball. And so the analogy is that when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are totally unresponsive to God. We cannot, we do not have any capacity to respond to Him. And yet we've seen these ten positive statements in Romans 1 through 10 about what a believer can do and what an unbeliever can do and an unbeliever can know. It helps me on this matter of spiritual death. And what does that mean? To compare it to the two other individuals that we know are presented clearly in Scripture as having died spiritually. Adam and Jesus. Adam was once alive spiritually. And he died spiritually. And in that state of spiritual death in Genesis chapter 3, We know that Adam and Eve could comprehend the presence of God. Because God was walking in the garden and they were hiding themselves. We know that Adam and Eve, in a state of spiritual death, were aware of their own shame and guilt. We know that they were able to hear and understand God. And they were able to answer God. While spiritually dead, those things are true of Adam and Eve. Jesus also died. He died in the exact same way that we die. He died physically and he died spiritually. During those three hours of darkness when he hung on the cross, he was spiritually dead. He was separated from his father. He tasted death fully in the same measure in which we taste death. 
If his experience of death was not identical to ours, then his atonement was not satisfactory for our death. He had to die exactly as we die. So if anything, his death was greater than ours, it could not have been less than ours and still been a satisfactory death substitution for our death. And what do we know about Jesus' death? Well, we know that when he was spiritually dead, he became sin. Um, first, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He did not become a sinner. He did not sin while spiritually dead. But he did become sin while he was spiritually dead. And in that three hours of spiritual death, we look at Jesus and we can receive instruction on what spiritual death looks like. And what in turn it means for us. Because what again was true of Jesus' death is true of our spiritual death when we are born into this world. In that state of being spiritually dead, Jesus knew that he was separated and forsaken by God. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that state of spiritual death, he was grieved by that separation. And he desired union with God. And he cried out to God while spiritually dead. So again, I have to take these things into consideration. Are we as unbelievers, when we come into this world, spiritually dead, separated from God, dead in trespasses and sins? Absolutely. But the Bible never says that I am dead in the same sense that a corpse is dead. That is an an extension of... Of that. That is an interpretation of that. But it is not what the scripture clearly says. And what I do see in scripture is that my spiritual death is the same spiritual death that Jesus experienced. And I see what Jesus experienced, and I have to say this is my experience as well. And the same with Adam and Eve, and then these ten things that Paul states positively about what the unbeliever can know and do. I bear them witness. These people who are not saved, they have a zeal for God. And they are able to subject themselves to the righteousness of God, but they refuse to do so. What must we know then in order to be saved? If you can know, what must we know? And there, and then now, this is what is leading into with the next section of this chapter. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. No reason to have to live by the law if you believe in Christ comes to an end. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. I don't have to go up into heaven to bring Christ down. I don't have to go to the abyss to bring Christ up. It's not dependent upon me and my works, in other, way, in other words. But I, but I simply believe in Jesus. Verse 8. For what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And here's that word of faith. This is what must be known and believed. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Very simply, I think Paul is saying, you've got to know what is saving knowledge. You have got to know who Jesus is and what he did. Who he is and what he did. He is Lord. Now, by that, it's not an issue here of, of, you know, it's a tangent to go into lordship salvation and whether that's necessary or not. That's not what Paul's point is here. You've got to know that Jesus is God. That's his point. Look what he says here when he picks up this quote. So he says in verse 9 that you must confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Then go down to verse 13. Whoever, this is an Old Testament quote, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the name of the Lord, Jesus, does not appear in the Old Testament. So when it's, so he's quoting the Old Testament here and saying, you must know and call upon the name of the Lord. The point is that you have to understand that Jesus is God. It's not just that I know the name Jesus. That's significant. But I must know who Jesus is. The name represents the person. And Jesus is as much God as the Father is or the Holy Spirit is. And a lesser Jesus does not save. And so if you think that, that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and, and, that he was, and, 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 you know, and that he became God but wasn't always God, or if you think that, that he is maybe almost like God but, he's, but he, if is anything less than the eternal God, then he is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is another Jesus. And so Paul says that you must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And again, the point here is not that he's Lord of every aspect of my life. That's another separate issue. The point here is that do you believe Jesus is God, fully God, God in the flesh, if that is not your belief, then your, then your hope of salvation is in someone who is not able to save you. It is in another Jesus. And secondly, that you believe in your heart that God raised this one from the dead. So the person of Jesus, who he is, he is God, and the work of Jesus, what has he done? And if he's going to speak about the resurrection, obviously he's speaking about the death because you're not raised unless you were dead. You have to know that Christ died for your sins, and that's not enough, because a dead Savior can't save you. But He rose from the dead, He is alive, and you're putting your trust, not simply in one who did something for you, but someone who wants to live in you. He is alive, and your trust is in a living person. So, strictly speaking, we do not put our faith in what Jesus did. We put our faith in Jesus, who did something for us. He gave his life for us. And so this is the heart of saving knowledge, to know that Jesus is God and he rose again from the dead and I can put my trust in him and if I do, I will not be disappointed in verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now that's not saying I'm not going to have disappointments in life. What it's saying is in respect to salvation... Any person who trusts in Jesus, who was risen from the dead, and who is fully God, that person will never be disappointed in respect to his salvation. He will be saved. Why does he say, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart? 
I believe that Paul is speaking in the parallelism of Hebrew thought, which, he would, have, which would have been his thought as a Hebrew. I think he's speaking in parallelism and not giving us two separate things, confess and believe. But he's speaking of the same thing because the second half of the verse, he says, with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation, righteousness results in salvation. And salvation results in righteousness. It's pretty hard to split righteousness and salvation. So I think he's speaking again. He's, saying, he's not saying one plus one equals two. If anything, it's one times one equals one. So I think he's just simply saying that's true saving faith typically manifests itself in confession with our mouths. And I, I have a good friend who's, who has the gift of evangelism. He's led many people to Christ. He was one time asking me my salvation story, how I came to Christ. I was 10 years old at the time. And so I recounted it to him over, over a meal we were having together. And as I finished, I didn't, know when he, I didn't realize he was even fishing for anything. I just thought he just wanted to hear my story. But he was fishing. And the thing he was fishing for was, what was my response after I received Christ? And he was waiting to hear me say something to the effect that I wanted to tell somebody that I was now a child of God. And in fact, I did say that. That I didn't even know how to tell anybody what had happened to me because because nobody had really fully explained it to me. It was on my own that that I had received Christ. But my first desire was to tell somebody else. And I went to school the next day, fifth grade, found my best friend. I said, I've got to tell you what's happened to me. And he said, what? And I said... I don't know. He thought I'd lost my mind. And so I went and got my next best friend and said, I've got to tell you what's happened to me. And the same thing, what? Because I'm all excited and they're excited because I'm excited. And I said, I don't know. Now I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I wanted to tell somebody. And again, that, that seems to be just the natural thing that comes out of a person when he has truly put his faith in Christ. Maybe he's afraid. But there's still the desire. And who's not afraid of sharing his faith? But there's the desire there. God, I want to tell people about you. I want to be used by you as a witness. That is an indication of truly belonging to the Lord Jesus. So I don't think he's saying it's confession plus belief. We know that's not where scripture goes. It is simply by believing in Jesus Christ that we are saved. But a true saving belief in Jesus will manifest itself in a desire to confess him, to make him known. What are sinners capable of knowing and doing? Much. But what must they know in order to be saved? They must know who Jesus is and what he has done. To quote other scripture, and it's very familiar to us, we know Acts 4.12. There is no other name that has been given by which men must be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a very clear thing that Paul is saying here. We, the unbeliever can know And what must he know? He must know that Jesus is God and that he gave his life for him 
and rose again from the dead. This is saving knowledge. It is not faith in and of itself which saves. All faith has content. It has an object. And the only object that will save is Jesus Christ, fully God, who gave himself for us and rose again from the dead. Faith always has to have an object. Even in the Old Testament where people didn't know the name of Jesus, from the very beginning, when that line of faith that came out of Adam, it says that they called upon the name of God. These are people who knew God's name, and they were not just people who were worshiping God generically, but they were worshiping according to the specific content of faith that God had revealed. There are people today that would say that as long as you just cry out to Allah, you will be saved. Allah is a different God. Even the Muslims say their God is not the Christian God. And why Christians would ever claim that our God is their God is beyond me. When the scriptures tell us that God is one and he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you believe that Jesus is not God, then whatever you believe of God, it is not the God of the Christians. It is not the God of the Bible. Because the Bible clearly reveals Jesus as fully God. There are people in the Old Testament that cried out to Baal. They were not saved. Cried out to Moloch or Chemosh or any of the other ones of the gods that they cried out to. They were not saved. Any more than today, if a person cries out to Allah or any other of the gods recognized by the religions of the world. It is Jesus who saves, and Jesus alone. The third issue here, the third question that comes up then, is how can they know who Jesus is and what he has done? If that's what they must know, who Jesus is and what he has done, then how can they receive that knowledge? Look at verse 9. I'm sorry, we'll go beyond verse 9. Verse um, 14. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who who bring glad tidings of good news. So what is Paul saying? If you have to know who Jesus is and what he has done, then you have to be told. And the only means that Paul gives is to hear through a human agency. So much so that he's going to say in verse 17, faith, faith in Christ specifically, comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, just to get one thing off the table, faith does not come from seeing miraculous demonstrations of power. Faith comes from hearing concerning Jesus. People do not get saved because they saw miracles. That may get their attention, 
but it does not get them saved. They must hear concerning Jesus. Here are the different options that are presented today. Again, I have heard people who claim to be evangelical Christians name every one of these options. First, as Paul is saying here, they must, there must be a preacher, human agency. That could be radio, that could be track distribution, that could be a Gideon Bible put into a hotel room. There are many different ways, but God is using human beings and human beings alone to get His Word broadcast into this world. Others would say that God is using dreams and visions, that there is direct divine communication that God is using to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Others are saying through nature people can come to know and be saved. Others would say that after we die, that God gives another chance, that maybe people are in hell for a brief period of time, and they go, if, this is what I, if I had known it was going to be like this, yes, I would have received Christ, and they have a chance to receive Christ even after they die. And some would say that all you have to do is simply live the good life that you can live, the best life that you can live, and the knowledge that you have, and you will be saved on the merits of Christ, even though you have never heard concerning Christ. Now let me step through those things real quickly. Dreams and visions. People, the claim is made, are being saved today on the basis of dreams and visions. We've had missionaries here in our church. The Clarks. Missionaries in northern Africa to Muslim people. And the last time they were here in the church, they told us, and we were all excited about it, how there are many Muslims in the area where they are ministering that are having the same dream. And in the dream, they see somebody hanging on a cross, and they hear the words, it is true. And so the Clarks told us, people are coming to faith in Christ because of the vision that they are receiving. Well, my folks had the Clarks over afterwards for lunch. And so I pressed them a little bit more on this. And I said, are you telling me that on the basis of that dream and that dream alone, that people are coming to faith in Christ? And he said, no, that is not what I meant. That there is not enough information being given to them in that vision. And so they, every one of those people are seeking out Christians, missionaries and others saying, what does this mean? Because I don't know. And it is a human agent that is leading them to Christ. We just had Satish John at his hill with us from India. And he is ministering in a predominantly Hindu area. He has come to know Christ. His brother has come to know Christ. And I asked him about this. Are you aware of anybody who has come to Christ simply and solely on the basis of a dream or a vision? And he says, absolutely not. He says, in my own case and in the case of my brother, he says, my brother heard the gospel first and then had a dream. And so whether the dream comes first or the dream comes afterwards, people are hearing concerning Christ. The example of Paul. Here's Paul walking along the road to Damascus going out to, to, to persecute Christians and Jesus appears to him. And Paul makes it seem in Galatians that that was his first appearance and his first knowledge of Jesus. Now that was when his, when his heart was opened. But he knew the gospel. That's why he's persecuting Christians. He knows that the Christians are saying Jesus is the Messiah and he believes that is blasphemy and he is persecuting Christians for their blasphemy. Paul was present when Stephen was stoned. He knew why Stephen was being stoned. He'd probably heard Stephen give his testimony. And so to say that he knew nothing is a big stretch. 
People sometimes point to Cornelius and say, here's a man who had a vision and he got saved. He had a vision and he was not saved until Peter came and preached. And at the preaching of the word, he got saved. The dream itself did not have sufficient content for him to get saved. Some would say, well, what about Abraham? Here's a guy who just out of the blue, God spoke to him, pulled him out of his paganism, out of his idolatry, and raised him up to be a father of many nations. And the argument is made that Abraham knew nothing prior to that God, God calling him. And I would say that is a strong argument from silence that has much against it. Abraham was a contemporary of Job. There was no Bible when Abraham was called. But you look at Job and see what that man knew, a contemporary of Abraham. And and Job tells us, just to read it quickly, he says in Job 19, verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. You would think that was written in the New Testament. And this is a contemporary of Abraham who supposedly knew nothing about God. We know about the flood. Every culture in ancient civilization has a flood story. And Abraham lived in the shadow of the ark. And the ark was right up there on Mount Ararat. And he lived just down the valley from there. How could he have not known about the flood? When Abraham meets Melchizedek, he is presenting tithes and offerings to Melchizedek according to Levitical law, and Leviticus has not even been written yet. To say the man knew nothing is a huge stretch. These people knew much, and if they saw a vision or a dream, it was either to complement what had already been heard, or else it was followed by saving knowledge concerning the Lord Jesus. Some would say through nature. And in fact, Paul seems to make some reference to that. Looking later down in the chapter, where he asked the question, what did they really know? Look at verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. And that is a quote from the first part of, of Psalm 19. Here's the thing. For the interest of time, I won't look at it. Psalm 19, first part of the chapter talks about how God is speaking through creation. But then he switches, and he says it is through the Word of God, through the statutes of God, the law of God, the ordinance of God, that God restores the soul. What I need in my soul, I cannot receive on the basis of creation. I need the Word of God for my soul to be fixed, for my sin to be removed. And Psalm 19 itself says that that soul restoration is not, has, it does not come through nature. It comes through the Word of God. We have to understand that what we need to know concerning Jesus is never revealed in nature. Paul spoke of nature in Romans chapter 1. And he says we can know the invisible attributes of God. We can know His majestic power. But there is nothing in that verse that says that we can know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He died and rose again from the dead. Nature does not reveal historical fact. Nature does not tell me that John Kennedy died in Dallas, Texas in 19, what was it, 63, 64? It doesn't tell me that. I can sit out by the waves and listen to the ocean roar for the next 20 years and I will never know one historical event. 
And I will never know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into history, hung on a cross for my sin, and rose again from the dead three days later. What I have to know in order to be saved is not revealed in nature. Some will be given a chance after they die. It's not what the Bible says. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Not a second chance. Some will be saved on the merits of Christ, but they don't have to know about Christ. Then why did Jesus die? If people can be saved without even knowing Him, just simply the merits applied because, because God is nice, then why did He even have to die? Bottom line is, folks, I would love to think, I'm enough a romantic that I would love to romantically believe that there are people being saved today who have never heard about Jesus. But it is romanticism. It is my romantic inclinations that bring me to that, not the scriptures. If there is any means that God is using other than human agency, the Bible says nothing about it. And I'm on safer grounds to go by what Scripture tells me than to be listening to stories that people are saying that can't oftentimes even be validated. The Bible says, how can they hear unless someone tells them? So the objection is raised. Well, you're limiting God. And why would God limit people being saved to human agency? What if we're disobedient? I would answer that by saying God can. It is possible for our sovereign God to limit himself. He is already limited by nature. And his nature does not keep him from accomplishing his will. And that same God who is limited by his nature, never tells a lie, for example, can still get his will done. So if my God, who is big, absolutely sovereign, says, I have a plan, and that is to save people, and I'm going to accomplish my plan through people, I have no trouble believing that my God is big enough to accomplish that plan according to his plan through people. He's God. He can do this. He can choose to limit himself and still accomplish his will. His sovereignty is not threatened by human responsibility. I understand that Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesians his last time before he was leaving them, he says, I have not shrunk away from the responsibility which God has given me, and the blood of no man is on my hands. And so it would seem Paul's lived in some kind of tension here where he really felt that I have an obligation to speak concerning Christ. And if I don't, then I am guilty, potentially guilty, of other people's blood. That's sobering. It's enough to motivate me. But I am not living in the fear that God's will is not going to be accomplished if I keep my mouth shut. God is bigger than me. And I know, I have no trouble believing that God can limit himself to work through human beings and not have his will threatened in the least. His divine sovereignty is not threatened 
by human responsibility. And then finally it comes down to did the Jews know? Remember Paul's talking about the present time that he was writing. Does this generation of Jews know concerning Jesus? And his answer is categorically yes. Look at what he says in verse 19. I say surely, Israel did not know, did they? And then he says, at the first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, so again, why is Israel not at this time saved? It is not because of ignorance. If you have to know concerning Jesus who he is and what he has done, did Israel know? The reason for their not being saved is not ignorance. Verse 21 God says all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel had enough knowledge in the Old Testament. Israel had the living Christ among them. They knew enough. They are not saved, not because of ignorance, but because of willfulness. A disobedient and obstinate people. In chapter 9... Paul seemed to be saying the Jews are the elect people, the elect nation of God. Israel is elect. And they are not saved, not because of God's failure to sovereignly elect, but because of their pursuit of righteousness by works instead of by faith. In chapter 10, Israel is not saved. And they are not saved because they don't have enough knowledge. God's given them plenty of knowledge. They are not saved because of their disobedience and their obstinacy, their refusal to believe. Can't close this without some kind of application other than just talking about Israel. Again, I, I, it is, I, I look at this passage and I have heard people say, People can be saved without hearing about Jesus on the basis of this passage. And I'm going, are our Bibles different? I mean, I just don't get it. I mean, because again, the conclusion that Paul is coming to is that there is a specific knowledge that we must have. We must know Jesus is God and he rose again from the dead. And Israel had that knowledge. Israel is not saved. Because Israel was disobedient and obstinate. That's his point. And he makes it clear that we must hear concerning Christ. And people will not hear unless someone tells them. It's not enough to see a difference in a person's life. They must know what the difference is. So I have to ask the question. Do we, with our hearts, truly believe in Jesus and call upon him? Have we given confession with our mouths? Is the desire in us to witness that Jesus is Lord, raised from the dead? If I have made that confession, if my heart has truly believed upon Christ 
And folks, there will be no disappointment. God will save us. And we can face death in peace and rest. We will not be disappointed. And finally, I can't get around this. I've heard and I have believed and I have a responsibility to speak concerning Jesus. I truly believe on the basis of God's word that there is no other way people will hear today other than the human agency that God has decreed. And that is you and I. We must speak. It is not sufficient to simply pray that people would see a difference in our lives. They must see and they must hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Thank you again, God, for using Israel